Now may God bless this reading of his word this morning. And I'm not sure what you think about when you read this passage of scripture, when you heard that uh, read out this morning, um, and, and what your mind actually goes to. But as I've engaged with it uh, over a period of time, the thing that constantly strikes me is that... Um, John expresses such great humility. Uh, good morning, Pastor Darrell, and no, Kids Church is not happening today. Thank you. So Pastor Darrell's just sent me a message, yeah, and he knows I'm preaching, so yeah, thank you. So, <laughs> Pastor Darrell is down in Sydney with his family and uh, having a great time, no doubt, and just decided to interrupt me right there, so thank you, brother. Obviously, Pastor Darrell's not humble, I can say that. So uh, what really strikes me is John's humility in everything that he does. And pride is a terrible thing. And there's many who consider pride to be the most deadly and evil of sins. And they don't say that lightly. And I certainly don't stand before you and say that lightly. But I want you to think about when Satan was in glory and why he fell from heaven. Isaiah 14, 4, 14 says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is Lucifer speaking. This is Satan before he was cast out of heaven. And despite the fact that he was aware that God had created him and the incredible beauty that Lucifer had and the wisdom and power that he possessed, it wasn't enough. All that was God given, but Satan wanted more. And he wanted to displace God. Pride told him that he was better than God, that he could overcome God, that he could conquer God and take his place. And I wonder if this was the first occasion where it was said, pride comes before a fall. Because fall, Satan did. Never to be restored to where he was previously. It was pride that caused that. And it's pride which is foundational to much of our sin even though we refuse to admit that we're proud or that it is pride. We sin and we go against God's will and purposes because we place what we want above God's will. We place what we want above his purposes. We believe we know what is best for us. That rings true of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They wanted to eat the fruit because they saw that they could actually gain wisdom. And because we think we know better than God, we become lords of our own lives. We decide what is best and what is right for me and ignore what God would have us to do. Pride causes us to take credit for what we've done instead of thanking God for the fact that he bestows so many free gifts, so much provision, so much help upon us. And we ignore all that he does and think it is us and our abilities that has gained what we have. So pride is delusional. Pride is spiteful. Pride is bitter. And at the very heart of pride is a response that declares, I don't want God to be God. I want to be God. I want control of my life. I want to do what I want to do. And to be honest with you, I can't think of too much that I can be proud of. But if there's anyone who had a right to be proud, anyone who 
could have perhaps been trapped and fallen into that attitude of pride. In my opinion, it would be John the Baptist. I mean, think about this guy. He was appointed the forerunner of the promised Messiah. He had the whole of Jerusalem, all of Judea, all of all of the region of the Jordan going out to hear him speak. I mean, if I gathered crowds like that, my goodness, I would have difficulty with my pride. And all of this from a man who was in his early 30s, it is phenomenal. But there's no hint of any pride in any of the recordings and writings about John the Baptist. And as his disciples become concerned about his ministry becoming less and less while Jesus' ministry is rapidly growing, John gives the one-liner which should become the mantra for each and every one of us and each and every one of his disciples. And we should daily adhere to this. He must increase. Jesus must increase. And I must decrease. So this morning... We're going to be looking at what it means to have true humility. The humility that John demonstrates in this passage. Let's pray. Lord, you're an all-powerful God. You're a mighty God. You're able to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And this morning, I just ask, open our ears and our minds to hear your voice, whether we're here in the auditorium or joining at home online, Lord. I ask your will and purposes be done. I ask you will speak through me, help me, use me to touch someone's life today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So our reading begins this morning and is speaking about two parallel ministries, ministries that are running quite successful ministries. One's on the rise, one is still continuing to do quite well. And they're actually in close proximity to each other. <coughs> There's a couple of little asides in this reading that I think are worth mentioning right at this time. These are still baptisms of repentance. So John the Baptist is baptising people who are repenting of their sin, waiting for the promised Messiah to come. Jesus, who didn't actually physically baptise, uh, his disciples were baptising when I said Jesus baptised, they were also doing a baptism of repentance, preparing these people for what was about to happen, for Jesus' death and resurrection, and their declaration of belief in his forgiveness of sin through that death and resurrection. So this is a baptism of repentance, both sides, preparing for what Jesus would ultimately do. So these people were first and foremost confessing their sins. They were admitting that they had gone their own way and done their own thing. And then they were being baptised in order to express what had happened internally. It was that outward cleansing which was an expression of what they had done. And what I find really interesting is um, there's, there's another side here which says um, because of the plentiful water, because water was plentiful there, people were being baptised. This is an indication that these baptisms were actually by full immersion. And the shock for me was that John Calvin himself declares that this is full immersion, even though he didn't practise full immersion in his churches his entire life. So I, I was quite surprised by that, that he would make that declaration. <coughs> 
we're moving more to what we're going to be talking about this morning, we're told that this discussion rises between John's disciples and a Jew. And remember, when we hear about a Jew or Jews in this passage of Scripture, in John's Gospel, he's talking about someone in authority. He's talking about scribes, Pharisees, something like that, the Jewish leaders of the day. And so they talk to this Jew, and we can only make assumptions about what they discussed, but it's a fair assumption to say that he was possibly talking about the ceremonial cleaning and cleansing that the Jews did. That's clearer in the NIV than it is in the ESV. And so the question was possibly revolving around whether that ceremonial cleansing was more relevant um, or superior to the baptism that was occurring with John the Baptist and trying to work out who was right and who was wrong. And I think it it points to that too when we think about um, the wedding in Cana again. Everything is foundational as we move through the gospel. And so the wedding in Cana had those ceremonial religious clay pots that were empty and Jesus filled them with new wine, an indication of what was to come again, that he would bring new life into the old, dead, useless, worthless, not used religion of Israel. The growing emphasis turns to the fact that those ceremonial practices weren't actually purifying people. The only thing that would would be new birth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said exactly that at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3, when he speaks to Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. But back to what's happening with this Jew and the disciples, something happened in that conversation which causes John's disciples to come to him and they say, Rabbi, that guy that you were with across the other side of the river, the one that you bore witness about, he's baptising too. He's taking your people. He's taking your ministry. He's doing things that he shouldn't be doing. This is your ministry, John. And John realises that these guys are jealous. He realises that they're jealous for him. And, And they see this as a terrible thing that Jesus is doing. And John had taught them why he had come and what he was to do. And it seems that they've forgotten everything that he said, or at least part of what he said. And they come to him imploring him about Jesus. They want him to do something about what is happening. They don't want John's ministry to die. But the thing is, John is clear about his call. He knows who has called him. He knows why he is being called. And he knows what must happen as a result of that call. He understands his role. He knows who Jesus is. And he didn't fool himself and feed his own ego. He didn't accept the praise of his followers, which would have been so easy to do. But he took this as a teaching opportunity for his disciples once again. And he points them to Jesus. And he begins by emphasizing that God is sovereign. In everything that John did, he elevated Jesus. Everything. This Jesus, sorry, he found great joy in doing that. He he just loved Elevating Jesus. It was never about him. It was always about Jesus. It was always about bringing people to Jesus. And John's humility came from a position of understanding who God is and understanding then who he, John, was in view of who God is. And John says to his disciples, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And John is almost rebuking his disciples here. He's like, don't you get it? 
Can't you understand my ministry, my purpose, my call, everything that I'm doing, all these people who come to me, everything that I've done for them and for you is not for me, it's God. It's for his purposes, it's for his glory. And not only that, the talent and ability and gifts that, God has, that I have are God-given. This ministry is God-given. He has allowed it. He is ultimately in control of it. It is God who gives and it is God who takes away. And John sees his role as faithfully doing what he's been told to do, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the numbers. And so even at this time, how easy would have it have been to be, well, Jesus has come, he's now doing what I was called to do, I'm just going to quit and walk away. It would have been dead easy. And I know people who do that. But John remains faithful to his call, even though his ministry is on the decline. He continues to do that which he believes God has called him to do. And there's less and less people coming to him and more and more people going to Jesus. And I'm sure part of that is because John's like, hey dudes, why are you coming to me? He's the one you need to go to. He's the one who I'm preparing the way for. His, his disciples, his followers, were jealous for him. And when they looked to Jesus, they saw that they were stealing John's followers, stealing John's ministry. But John sees success in another as an act of God. He sees it as God's will. He sees it as God's sovereignty. And John is overjoyed at Jesus' success. He celebrates all that Jesus is doing and he gives praise to God. John has this incredible spiritual insight and he believes exactly what we should be believing as well. All Christ-centred service, all of it, regardless of the results, is equal in God's eyes. All of it. John understood God's sovereignty in this. And he also had this incredible awareness of who he was. And we need to be aware of who we are in respect to God as well. I'm not sure if John is frustrated, but he wants to remind his followers of what he's told them all along. And he says, you know that I said to you, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And John obviously knows that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. And to help explain his position, he uses an analogy that those people can understand. And I think we can understand as well. All of us shudder. When we go to a wedding and someone other than the bride turns up in a beautiful white dress, yeah? Why? Why? Because it takes the attention off the bride and the bridegroom, does it not? And so when you go to a wedding, the attention should be solely focused on the bride and the bridegroom. And this is what John is saying in this analogy. He's saying, you know, I, Jesus is, is the bridegroom. And John's saying, my role as Jesus' friend is to bring the bride and bridegroom together and then get out of the way. I cannot hinder the work of the bride and the bridegroom, particularly the bridegroom in this case. The focus on any wedding should be on the bride and the bridegroom. And to be fully aware of who we are, we must have an understanding of who God is. And I keep harping on it. But if we could get a glimpse of his glory, it would transform our lives. It would change us forever. If we could understand his majesty, his power, his greatness, his glory, we'll be so much more humbled in his presence.
if we could just get a glimpse, we'd understand how insignificant we are in comparison. And I have no qualms in saying that. It seems to grate on people for some reason, but we are insignificant in the presence of an incredibly glorified, majestic, all-powerful, almighty God. But the huge thing for us, it should leave us in awe that such a magnificent God chooses to use us. Do you think he needs us? Not on your life. He could create whatever he wanted. But he chooses to use us. He chooses to include us in his great and mighty work. He pours his grace, love and blessings out upon us. He uses, chooses to use us for his glory and purposes. And John got that. He didn't count it as his right. He counted it as an honour. He didn't see it as a burden, even the type of life that he lived. He saw it as an incredible privilege to be involved in the work of God in that day and in that time. And he was overjoyed, overjoyed and was committed to allowing Jesus to continually increase in his life and for him to decrease. He didn't insist on his way. He didn't insist on his rights. He didn't insist that this was his call. He lived each and every moment of each and every day with his eyes fixed firmly upon Jesus fixed firmly upon God. John understood that this was not his wedding, this was not his moment. He wasn't there to shine. He was there to serve the groom, to bring the bride to him. And if John had considered even momentarily his ministry compared to Jesus' ministry, what was happening to, compared to him compared to what was happening to Jesus, he could have stumbled. He could have fallen. But everything he did, and everything he saw Jesus doing, he saw as being done for God. And he just loved it, reveled in it, rejoiced in it. And as he firmly fixes his eyes on Jesus, his attention and his focus is on one so infinitely above him, so much more powerful. And he sees himself as so undeserving and yet so abundantly blessed to be included in God's purposes. And John is a living, breathing example of what is second, said in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unfailed face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I wonder what our attitude would be if we were in that time and we were looking upon John's ministry I wonder if, this, if John's ministry was actually a ministry of this church, what we would think. He started so well, didn't he? He was obviously blessed by God because all these people were coming to him. But what happened at the end here, folks? His ministry is beginning to wane, isn't it? He must have messed up. He must have done something wrong. How can a guy so blessed end up with something like this? In fact, many of his followers left him. He wasn't baptising anywhere near the amount of people that he once was. God had used him so powerfully. I mean, was this guy harbouring sin or something? What was going on? We have this judgmental attitude towards people and towards ministry. 
And when John was perceived as successful, it didn't affect him in his relationship with God. And when many considered that his ministry was failing and he was unsuccessful, it didn't affect his relationship with God because it was God's ministry and he would do what he wanted with it. And for John, it didn't just bring great joy, it completed his joy. He knew this was God's plan and purpose all along. And so he rejoiced in it. He had heard Jesus' voice. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. John had heard Jesus' voice. That voice that originally called him. The voice that proclaimed the purpose of John's life. The voice that John was obedient to all of his life to the very end. He listened to him. He listened to what God said and not what others have said. And I believe that because of that, John was able to remain steadfast in his faith regardless of what was thrown against him. He understood that the time that he spent with God, submitting to him, obeying him, listening to him, was more important than the things he did. Do you get that? Time with God is more important than what we do. John knew what true wisdom was. He gained that through a true knowledge of who God is. And through a true knowledge of who God is, he understood who he truly was as well. He also knew that if he only relied on a knowledge of himself, it would be a distorted view of who he was in God's image. He needed the true knowledge of God in order to understand fully who he was in God's image. And as a result, John stood firmly on his faith and belief in God and constantly sought him in all things. And he was able to remain firm on his convictions, obedient to the end, because he willingly submitted all of himself to God. And what was John submitting to? I think it was that mantra. I think it's a very simple thing. Jesus must increase. John must decrease. And isn't this a call for each and every one of us? Isn't this a call that should be on each and every one of our lives? Why should John and why should we be so willing to submit? Because it is Jesus alone who came from God. John, the author of this book, says, This Jesus... Sorry, John, the author of the book, said this, and Jesus himself said this uh, to Nicodemus at the start of the book, back in verse 11, sorry, where he says, he bears witness to what he has seen. Jesus has seen God the Father. He knows God the Father intimately, and he came to bear witness to God the Father, to his purposes, but also Jesus came to fulfill those purposes. It is God who sent Jesus. And what Jesus speaks are the very words of God. And John listened to those and he obeyed those words. He believed them to be absolute truth, something which is waning in the world right now. And now God, the Father who loves Jesus, has given all things into his hand. And as a consequence, there will come a day when we will stand before Jesus, each and every one of us. He will ask many why they did not believe. And there's some of you here today, some of you online, who do not believe Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. He'll ask many why they did not obey. 
And again, there's many of you sitting here who are not obeying Jesus. There's many of you online, much the same. But there are many who are here today who will be welcomed as good and faithful servants, who heard Jesus' voice, who responded and obeyed to him, who submitted all of their lives to him and lived for him, regardless of what people said about them. We are told by John, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon them. Whoever believes in the Son, whoever does not obey the Son, it's belief and obey. They go hand in hand. There's no other way a Christian can live. They believed and they obeyed. Those who do not believe and obey will have the wrath of God remain on them. And I, for one, do not want the wrath of God upon me. So I want to speak briefly to those of you who do not know Jesus this morning. If this is true, what we've talked about this morning, if salvation is real, if Jesus Christ is the saviour that he says he is, wouldn't you want me to tell you about it? Wouldn't you want me to proclaim that truth to you so that you could have an eternity in paradise rather than an eternity suffering? I don't believe I have any choice but to tell you constantly about the incredible saving grace that is found in Jesus. Wouldn't you want me to constantly hound you to seek truth for yourself and to make an informed decision? I ask that you think about what John has come to understand about who God is and who he is in relation to him. John sees God as the supplier of all we see, all we taste, all we are. Everything comes from him. He is the creator of all things, including you. He controls all things. And that means he holds your very life in his hands. We cannot number our days. He does that. He knows when you will live. He knows when you will die. You will hear it said, the God is a God of love. And I will not deny that. But people take that to an extreme level where, well, if God is a loving God, then he is surely not going to punish anyone because he loves us. The intention is that you've got nothing to worry about. Live your life how you will. When that day comes because of God's great love, he'll just let it slide. It won't be a problem. But God's love, the fact that God is love, is only one aspect of a multifaceted God. And the other facet that I only want to touch on briefly this morning is the fact that he is a just God. He cannot, cannot allow sin to go unpunished because he is a just God. It is counter to his nature to allow that to happen. But because of his great love, he didn't want to lose any of us. And so he took every step necessary in order to save all of humanity. And he sent his son to die on earth in our place. Can you imagine the suffering of God and Jesus? in that incredible sacrifice. I do not believe he could have done more in order to save humanity. And so he has opened this way for us. 
He has done all he can do to save the lost. And he has provided us with his word. He has provided with those who so faithfully believe in order to encourage you to seek truth for yourself. And he wants you to be brought back into right relationship with him. And the way you do that is to accept that Jesus Christ died upon that cross, taking his sin, your sin sorry, upon himself. And when you accept that he's done that, when you ask his forgiveness, when you realise you have lived your life for yourself and not for him, you enter into the kingdom. He imparts his righteousness upon you. He took your sin upon himself and he imparts his righteousness upon you. So when you stand on that day in God's glory and presence, in God's glory and presence, he looks upon you and he sees Jesus. He sees what Jesus has done. He doesn't see your sin. Don't hear me saying Christians are better than you. We are not. We were just as lost. We are just as sinful. It's just we know the key to being saved. And it's not difficult. It's not hard. Please seek Jesus. Seek the truth for yourself. He paid an incredible price so that you may be saved. And he paid it once and for all. There's nothing that will separate you from God if you'll submit and humble yourself before him. Will you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? That's the question. Maybe you're not at that point yet. So I just ask you, pray. Pray that if God is real that he will reveal his truth to you. I've told many people to do this who didn't want to commit their life to Jesus and when they have earnestly prayed that prayer, guess what? They've come to the Lord, ultimately, because they have had the truth revealed to them and they've accepted it. They've had no choice but to do so. And there's many books that have been published where people have set out to disprove Jesus Christ and his saving grace and they have ended up giving their lives to Jesus. If you have prayed that prayer, if that's a desire of your heart, please contact us. We're not going to break your arm to become a Christian, but we'd just like to present some truth to you. And then you can go off and examine that for yourself. And uh, we can do no more. You need to make that decision for yourself. For the rest of us, I believe if John the Baptist was able to speak to us this morning, I think he would ask us if we understood who we are, all we have, our gifts, our abilities, our talents, do we understand that everything we see, everything we do is a gift from God? Do you believe that? Because if we believe that, it should transform our lives. I believe that he would express that these are all things which God would have us use for his glory and purposes. And I need to ask, are we doing that? Do we seek every opportunity to actually do that? Can we look over the last year? Can we look over the last month? Can we look over the last week and say, you know what? I have determined to make Jesus increase in my life and I've determined to put down those things which make me increase. I want to decrease, I want Jesus to increase in my life. I want to be more and more like him each and every day. And if that's not the story of your life as a Christian, if that's not where you're going, then we need to refocus. The very work that we do when we do it, are we mindful of the fact that God gave you the ability to perform the tasks that you were performing in your workplace? And because he gave you those abilities, you should be able to praise, honour and glorify him regardless of the job that you're doing. I've said many times, I think when we get to heaven and the rewards are handed out, they're going to be warehouse sweepers close to the throne of God because they did that sweeping for the glory of him. You're not going to see great evangelists only close to the throne. And in fact, I think you'll be surprised how many evangelists aren't close to the throne. Those who are closest to Jesus on that day will be the ones who did whatever task they did for his glory and purposes regardless of what that was and friends 
regardless of the job you have, are you thankful for it? God gave it to you. It is something that allows you to live, to buy things, to feed yourself. If you're a stay-at-home mum or dad, I'm sure we have many of those with us and online with us. You have the privilege of raising your kids. And I know you're saying, if you only knew, Charlie. I did it for a while. I do know. These children are entrusted to us for a very short season. My baby turned 12. Not a baby anymore. And when I speak to people who have newborn children, I say, don't waste a moment because they are only truly 100% dependent upon you for a matter of weeks. And people say, what a load of rubbish. Mums and dads, how long before your kid learned how to cry to get food? How long did it take for them to learn how to cry to get a nappy changed? They knew exactly what they needed to do in order to get what they wanted in a very short period of time. And they grow and they learn so rapidly. And we are honoured and privileged to have children. We are honoured and privileged to raise them in the things of Christ. They are a gift from God. Do not belittle our stay-at-home parents. They do an incredible job, a difficult job. And you're doing it for God's glory and purposes, my friends. We need to honour that. Are you truly thankful? Never ceases, well, I suppose I'm never amazed. Parents who've lost children, whose children have passed, they wish that just one more day their kid could be naughty just to be with them. It's funny how we can overlook those things in those tragic circumstances. For our students, are you thankful that we live in a country where you can gain an education, male, female, rich, poor, whatever? We all have the ability to gain an education. And for those who go on to tertiary education, are you thankful that you have the ability to absorb information and learn? That is something that God has given you and you should be thankful for it. Everything, everything we have is from above. Everything we have is from God. Our church and our ministries are now... I'm going to talk about something which I know would never happen here at SDBC. You can say amen at the end when I tell you what I'm going to talk about because I know this never happens here. But you know when that new person comes into the church... That new person who's incredibly gifted and talented and able and they are recognised by the leaders of the church and they get this position and they do this incredible work and everyone just loves them and you've been working your heart out for so long and suddenly this person takes what you thought you were going to get to do. Never happens here, does it? You know what? That's jealousy. And behind that jealousy is pride. I should have had that job. Think about John. John stood on the sideline, he saw that new person come in and he went, praise God, he has gifted that person so incredibly. They are doing such incredible work for the Lord and I'm just going to stand here, I'm going to worship the Lord. My ministry is waning but praise God that this one is just taking off. Isn't that awesome? Even though we think some things aren't fair, it's not for you to decide. That's for God to decide. 
And he empowers and equips those who he chooses to use for his glory and purposes. I thought I should have been a great singer. I thought I should have been able to do solos. I can sing, but I'm not great. And I tell you, I, I really, I got really aggro about it for quite some time. And I just begged God to change my voice. Didn't happen. And I refused to use the gifts that he had given me. Maybe that's why it took me so long to become a father. Why are you guys laughing? Gee, I do all right when I sing. John looked on and implored and applauded others. He encouraged them in their work. And if his disciples had gone on and done greater things for him, he would have applauded them as well. And isn't that what we should be doing? We should be on the sidelines. We should see stuff that people are doing and we should applaud them. Let's face it, there's things that other people do that I cannot do and praise God that God brings them in. That's why we have the body. Each and every part of us is different because God has a purpose and a reason for each and every one of us. And we should celebrate that. We should elevate that. We should encourage people to use their gifts, talents and abilities for God's glory because that's what he wants them to do. That's why he has called them. Pride is expressed in jealousy over who people are, over what they have, over what success they have, how they are honoured by others. And it should never be, particularly in the church. We should realise that everything, in every part of our lives, even in the spiritual things, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. It is not about me, it's about him, and it's about him raising up whoever he desires. Our time on earth and in ministry regardless of how great it is, is only temporary. No one is going to remember me in 50 years after I pass. No one. It just won't happen. My life is only temporary. Jesus' ministry goes on forever. And so he must empower and equip the next generation to do exactly that, to carry on his ministry. He said, I will build my church. And it doesn't matter who has come against Jesus' church, he has continued to build it. Think of China and the many millions who've come to faith and are in underground churches there. He will build his church regardless. And he'll use me in the work for as long as he decides. And when he decides my time's done, there's nothing I can do about it. And it's the same for each and every one of us. All we have is given to us from above, from Jesus. So all we do, all our efforts should be to elevate the mighty name of Jesus. We should hunger and thirst for him, to know him more, to love him more. And our focus should be totally upon him. We should spend time in our word. We should never waver from our faith, regardless of our outward circumstances, regardless of what is happening to our spiritual ministry, regardless of the amount of failures that we experience. So my friends, let's give him greater control. Let's submit to him more. Let's allow him to become bigger. When we do, his will, his purposes will be so ingrained, so much a part of our lives that our choices, our actions, our attitudes, all of it will bring glory to him just as John the Baptist did because he has increased and I have decreased. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this word this morning. I thank you for how it's challenged me and Lord, that is my prayer. I need not say any more. For each and every one of us here in the auditorium, for those online, may you increase and may we decrease. We desperately need you, Lord. I want you and I trust that's the prayer for everyone here this morning. Let them not be empty words, I pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.